This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 99, June 20, 1985. I'd like to begin this time with some comments on a book by Sam Cohen, who is the author of We Can Prevent World War III. It was just published this year by Jameson Books, J-A-M-E-S-O-N Books, 722 Columbus Street, Ottawa, Illinois, 61350 for $13.95. It's a very important book because Cohen is an important man. He is the inventor of the neutron bomb. One of the things that uh, Cohen has to say is that we have emphatically forsaken our common sense with regard to defenses. We are involving ourselves with the defense of the whole world, and nothing is being defended adequately, especially the United States. Our troops in Europe are there as hostages, the purpose they were retained after World War II was to make sure that if anything further developed in the way of a threat from the Soviet Union, the United States would inevitably in be involved because our troops are there not in any effective military capacity, but to be overrun and to involve us. Cohen feels that our premise in our foreign policy should be that stated early in the history of our country by John Quincy Adams, who said, I quote, America must be the friend of liberty everywhere, but bear the responsibility only for its own, unquote. Cohen's thesis is that we need to help any country in the world that is trying to establish itself as a free country or to maintain its current freedom, but that we cannot involve ourselves militarily. We can give them the aid. Ultimately, they must fight for their freedom themselves. We need instead to develop our own capacities and our uh, ability to defend ourselves. Moreover, he says, one of the tragic mistakes that we have made, and I quote, the NATO allies, including the U.S., have postured and trained their forces to refight World War II with conventional armies. Although we are now almost 40 years into the nuclear age, NATO's policy rejects the use of nuclear weapons to achieve policy protective objectives for example, hold back the Red Army. Its forces are not trained in nuclear warfare, and its nuclear weapons, almost all of them belonging to the U.S., are based on a strategy intended mainly to ensure that their use will envelop the U.S. and the Soviet Union in a thermonuclear exchange. In other words, we have developed and deployed nuclear weapons for NATO whose use may succeed in killing us. 
Our nuclear weapons, supposedly intended to protect Europeans, are actually, by our own policy, directed toward our own suicide. This is the bedrock of NATO's deterrent strategy, our threat to commit suicide. Our European allies are not really interested in putting up a fight to keep out the Red Army. They have yet to muster up the forces to be able to fight a ground war in their own defense. Rather, as Henry Kissinger explained several years ago, the secret dream of many Europeans was, of course, to avoid a nuclear war. But if there had to be a nuclear war to have it conducted over their heads by the strategic forces of the United States and the Soviet Union, unquote. Cohen also makes the point that Europe's history has been continually marked by irrational wars. We managed to survive the last two, but the next one, he says, may kill us if we don't quit the mess we have created. So, he feels, we have to tell, tell Europe, defend yourselves. We're ready to help you with armament and the like if you're ready to defend yourselves. But you've abdicated your own defense. You are relying on us to fight the war for you. He goes on to develop the economic consequences of our present policy and the military uh, consequences. And he feels that we are following a ridiculous course. Our nuclear arms control talks are ridiculous. And he suggests that we stop this unrealism and begin to think realistically about our chances of survival. And he says, about four years ago, and I quote, I was interviewed for a national security position by a high-ranking administration official. The official had a very distinguished background in foreign policy and was a renowned expert in international law. At one point in our discussion, he stated very dramatically that the world had become a jungle where the revered principles of international law had largely been discarded. I emphatically agreed with him and then proceeded, not too wisely, I guess, to tell him that we, the United States, ought to get out of that jungle as fast as we can to avoid nuclear war. Whereupon he froze. That was the end of the interview and my chances for a job. Unquote. Well, he uh, gives us, and I'm not going into the details or the general outline of what he has to say, I think you ought to read it. Uh, what we ought to do to change our foreign policy, to defend our country, and to take a realistic attitude towards our future. Let me add this. There was a time when, for a century and a half, the greatest of world empires and the source of keeping the peace all over the world in its day was the Spanish Empire. Just think back to the fact that Spain at that time had the Netherlands and Austria and much of Germany 
as a result of the status of its ruler as Holy Roman Emperor. It had possessions throughout Africa, all of South and Central America, great portions of North America and the Caribbean, possessions in the Far East, such as the Philippines, and was a power of enormous wealth. But it destroyed itself through inflationary policies, through a weak monetary system, and a great deal more, but in part also by spreading itself so thin all over the world. Now, history moves at a much more dramatic rate. So what then took a century and a half before the Spanish Empire collapsed can take place much more quickly in our day as both the USSR and the U.S. exhaust themselves economically, militarily, and emotionally trying to take care of the whole world. Well, another very important book of like character, in fact, it should be read together with Sam Cohen's book, Robert Jastrow, How to Make Nuclear Weapons Obsolete, published by Little Brown and Company in Boston, uh, and the copyright dates are 83, 84, and 85, because portions of the work had appeared in various um, magazines previously. The book was just published this year. Now, like Cohen, he is hard-hitting, and he speaks as one of the top scientists in the field, the founder of NASA's Institute for Space Studies, and much more. He begins by making this statement, and I quote, not many people know that for 13 years the official policy of the U.S. government has been to keep the American people defenseless against Soviet nuclear attacks. But this is the case. Thirteen years ago, the United States and the Soviet Union signed a treaty, the so-called Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, or ABM Treaty, which says that each country guarantees to keep its people undefended against a nuclear attack by the other side. Most people are incredulous when they hear this, yet the language of the treaty is plain. It states, each party undertakes not to deploy ABM systems for defense of the territory of its country and not to provide a base for such defense. There is no quarreling with the intent of that statement. It says that the governments of the U.S. and the USSR have entered into a solemn written agreement to keep their countries undefended against nuclear attacks. The agreement was ratified by the Congress in 1972 and has been the law of the land ever since." Unquote. As Jastrow then points out, the Soviet Union has not kept that tree, made no attempt to do so. In fact, no sooner was the treaty signed than the Soviets 
proceeded to build up their missile forces to an awesome level and their defense forces, their civil defense plans. And they kept on building. Moreover, we have had the technology to defend ourselves in the, the high frontier concept for a good many years, but we have done nothing about it. And we have, uh, and he lists as a scientist, the various technologies that have been developed to make nuclear weapons obsolete. And we are determined not to use them. The Union of Concerned Scientists and others have done everything to misinform the American public coming from a leftist perspective. We are told very little of what the Soviet Union is actually doing in playing at the game of uh, war with the U.S., for example, and I quote from Jastrow, in one case when the Soviets intentionally exploded their bomb-in-orbit satellite, more than 100 pieces were seen to fly out. In another case, the Soviet bomb-in-orbit satellite, test satellite, broke up over the United States and deposited fragments across Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, unquote. In other words, they've been testing their ability to target us, and we keep that uh, to ourselves. They have developed their anti-satellites, but we say it would be unwise to do anything. Moreover, as Jastrow points out, we are in NATO, and NATO is determined that the United States be defenseless because then we will be ready to defend them. I quote again from Jastrow, Some time ago I had a conversation with a British journalist who explained to me why some European leaders have been opposed to an American Star Wars defense against Soviet missile attacks. It would recreate for Fortress America, he said, because if the United States possessed a shield against Soviet missiles, American security would be decoupled from the security of Western Europe, and we would be less inclined to go to war for our European allies if the Soviets attacked them. Unquote. He has... Uh, data on this uh, from a number of uh, European sources, including the same kind of unrealism from Prime Minister Thatcher in England. Again, this is a very, very important book. If we pay no attention to the warnings that Cohen and Jastra give us, we deserve what we're going to get. There was something in both books, however, that neither writer called attention to, a religious factor. What is our problem? 
Our problem is a false religious faith informing our politics. We are motivated politically, economically, and militarily by humanism, an old-fashioned sentimental humanism which tends to see man either as morally neutral or morally good, definitely not a fallen and depraved person. The Calvinistic view, of course, is very much detested by the American estab establishment. Well, as a result, both writers quote all kinds of ridiculous statements from our leaders which have as their premise the assumption that, well, they wouldn't do such a thing. Well, that's insanity. That's exactly what they're planning to do because Soviet humanism is logical. It is based on their dialectical materialism. They believe that man is not uh, to be uh, discussed or thought of in terms of good and evil. Man is a product of an animal past, according to the Marxists, and therefore the only governing motivation is materialistic, in particular economic determinism, a class conflict, class interest. Therefore men are not good. Therefore you use whatever weapons, whatever tools are necessary in order to further the victory of your class. Since you do not believe in morality, you are not governed by moral considerations. The net result is that the Soviet Union, Marxists generally, are logical and consistent with what they believe. But our foreign policy has a humanistic view of man and the world with hangovers of Christianity, and the result is impotence, impotence. Now let me go on to say that this is the problem that marks our churches. Go anywhere across the country into any church and you will find that the majority of the members, no matter how Bible-believing that church professes to be, when the chips are down, want to believe only that in the Bible which suits them. They, as wishy-washy Christians with a lot of humanism mixed in with their faith will say, well, I don't like this and I don't like that and I don't care what the Bible says. I'm not going to accept this. I'm not going to believe in uh, the story about Jonah. And six-day creationism, well, there can be some other version. And predestination. And uh, the doctrine of the atonement, well, I believe in it, but not in, in exactly the terms Paul phrases it, and so on and on. They go to the Bible as though it was a smorgasbord dinner, a buffet, and they can pick and choose what they want. Our foreign policy is weak because our churches are weak. We are weak as a people because we do not say, Thus saith the Lord, and here I stand, I can do no other. There's a pick-and-choose attitude. 
And so we have an impotence. We have an impotent foreign policy which reflects an impotent people. One more work which deals with the problem of the Soviet Union. Viktor Suvorov, whose previous books I have discussed on the easy chair, has another one, Inside Soviet Military Intelligence, published by Macmillan in New York in 1984. A very important work. And the point he makes out, makes very clearly, is that uh, the purpose of the GRU, the Soviet Military Intelligence Agency, uh, is a very important and a powerful one and is active all over the world. Moreover, he says, the party cannot exist without a continuous repression of the people. And the real function of the KGB is to keep the people in line. And the military must keep the threat of gold, uh, the threat of foreigners, uh, going at all times because they are uh, necessary. They have to tell the people we are threatened. We have a problem with all these foreigners. So... We're going to be destroyed if you don't uh, submit. Moreover, they possess mountains of gold, he said, from the millions of people killed after the revolution in torture chambers. And the looting they continually have indulged in has also brought them a great deal of gold. Thus, the main purpose of the Soviet government is to keep the people in line, to suppress them so that they can be compelled at all times to do what they are ordered to do. So, he sums it up in these words. I quote, The basic function of the KGB may be expressed in one guiding phrase, not to allow the collapse of the Soviet Union from inside. The function of the GRU may also be stated in one parallel but quite different phrase, to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union from an external blow." Unquote. This, then, is their perspective. Now, as he goes on to point out, it would be very easy to overthrow the Soviet Union. He says the, uh, well, let me quote from page 135. In general terms, the GRU leadership is quite confident that it is capable of obtaining any technological secret from the West, provided it has been allocated a sufficient sum of money. Only one technological secret exists which the GRU is incapable of obtaining. Even if it did obtain it, the Soviet system would not be able to copy it, since for that the whole system, the whole structure of communism, would have to be changed. 
Yet this technological secret is of vital importance to the Soviet system. It is the Achilles heel of socialism. Strike at it, and socialism will fall to pieces. All invasion, nationalization, and collectivization will cease. This secret is nothing more than the means of producing bread. Socialism, for all its gigantic resources, is not capable of feeding itself. How easy it would be, one sometimes thinks, to place an embargo on the supply of bread to the Soviet Union until Soviet forces no longer found themselves in occupied Czechoslovakia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, until such time as the Cubans no longer held sway in Africa, until the Berlin Wall disappeared. It would only be necessary to withhold supplies of grain for a few months, and the whole edifice of socialism might fall to pieces." Unquote. Others have said this same thing. Here is Suvarov, the highest-ranking uh, Soviet defector from intelligence, and he tells us this also. But, of course, we show no inclination to do anything about it. One of our problems, I mentioned the defective view of man. Another is the defective view of God. We expect God to do things that God requires us to do. Jeremiah and other prophets of the Old Testament describe with horror the problems that they faced with Israel and Judah. As they warned them of the danger, of the power of the enemy, and their self-inflicted weakness, the attitude of the people was, it can't happen to us. God is on our side. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is with us. And so, God will work some miracle to save us. Well, if you refuse to eat and wait on God to feed you, you're not going to be fed. God will leave you to starve. God despises that sort of thing. So if we're going to leave our defense to God, if we're going to abandon every kind of common sense self-defense, why should God defend us? We're not fit to be defended. We are fit then only for destruction, and we'll get it. Well... Now on to something else, a very interesting little book by John Demas, D-E-M-O-S, A Little Commonwealth, Family Life in Plymouth Colony, out of print now, I believe, but published originally by Oxford University Press in 1970. There are a number of things in this book that are of interest, uh, the use of biblical law in New England as their law, 
the care of the poor, the fact that criminals were sentenced to bond service in order to make restitution, and a good deal more. But uh, one thing that uh, is of interest, uh, he speaks of the family as, first of all, a business, an absolutely central agency of economic production and control. He says also it was a school where the basic learning took place. It was a vocational institute where every family member was taught how to work. It was a church, a place of worship. It was a house of correction. In fact, idle and even criminal persons were sentenced by the court to live as servants in the families of more reputable citizens. And the family was then geared to the discipline and training of people. It was a welfare institution. It was an orphanage in that children whose parents had died were taken into the home of another relative or friend. It was also an old people's home in that families took care of their own and if there were no children, they were still taken care of somehow. So it is a very important uh, fact to recognize what the Puritan family or Pilgrim family was. Then a brief uh, comment. In a recent uh, review, I won't go into the nature of what was reviewed and so on, but in a mildly conservative periodical, a statement was made. Both China's and India's population has doubled within the last 40 years. In India, the birth rate is still so high that every month 100,000 children die of malnutrition, unquote. Well, now, this is uh, falsehood. I'm not saying that 100,000 children do not die every month in India. I haven't counted them. I don't know. I have every reason to believe the source is reputable and that apparently a hundred thousand children or a million two hundred thousand die of malnutrition every year in India. But the evil in this statement is that the birth rate is still so high that every month a hundred thousand children die of malnutrition. Is it the birth rate or is it not rather the total incompetence of a socialistic form of government and its misuse of land? Is it not the religious faith that makes them unwilling to kill animals which are destructive of crops? We have sent wheat in many a year to India to alleviate the hunger. The rats destroy as much as we send or more of India's total 
wheat supplies. And of course, you can't kill those rats religiously. They're opposed to it. So, why not expect results like that? It isn't the birth rate. It is the false religion which prevails. Another book published recently, which is of, I think, perhaps very great interest, more so than any of the others, is Alexis de Tocqueville's Selected Letters on Politics and Society. This was translated and edited, published by the University of California Press at Berkeley for uh, 24.95, published this year, 1985. De Tocqueville's comments are uh, most interesting as he uh, speaks about the United States. He has a great deal of uh, incisive commentary, which I think is a good supplement to his book, Democracy in America. He says, and I quote, One must not look here either for that family spirit or for those ancient traditions of honor and virtue that distinguish so eminently several of our old societies of Europe. A people that seems to live only to enrich itself could not be a virtuous people in the strict meaning of the word, but it is well ordered. All the trifles that cling to idle riches it does not have. Its habits are regular. There is little or no time to devote to women, and they seem to be valued only as mothers of families and managers of households. Mores are pure. This is incontestable. The rue of Europe is absolutely unknown in America. The passion for making a fortune carries away and dominates all others. Unquote. Then again he says that... Uh, this, I think, is very important. Political societies are not what their laws make them, but what sentiments, beliefs, ideas, habits of the heart, and the history of the culture have shaped them to be. Then, quoting again with regard to the United States, he says, mores here are very pure. The bond of marriage in particular is more sacred here than anywhere else in the world. Respect for religion is pushed to the point of scrupulousness. No one, for example, would be permitted to go on a hunt, to dance, or even to play an instrument on Sunday. Even a foreigner is not free on this point. I have seen streets blocked off before churches at the hour of holy services. These are Republicans who hardly resemble our liberals in France at all. This is the good side. The bad is the immoderate desire to make a fortune and to do it quickly, the perpetual instability of desires, the continual need for change, the absolute absence of old traditions and old mores, the commercial and mercantile spirit that is applied to everything, even to what least admits of it. End of quote. 
then again he says uh, from a small town Caldwell, 45 miles from New York, Sunday is observed Judaically, and I have seen streets blocked off in front of churches during the holy services. The law commands these things imperiously, an opinion much stronger than the law compels everyone to appear at church and to abstain from all amusements. Nevertheless, either I am badly mistaken or there is a great store of doubt and indifferently hidden, uh, indifference hidden underneath uh, these external forms. Uh, political passion is not mixed as it is in our country with irreligion. But even so, religion does not have any more power. It is a very strong impulse that was given in days gone by and now is expiring day by day. Faith is evidently inert. Enter the churches, I mean the Protestant ones, and you hear them speak of morality, of dogma, not a word. Nothing that could in any way shock a neighbor. Nothing that could reveal the hint of dissidence. In other words, what de Tocqueville said was, theology had given way to practical morality and an indifference to a doctrine. This uh, is so delightful, this whole book, that I, it would be tempting to uh, read a great deal more. But just a few more things. He did see that democracy was going to lead to uh, totalitarianism. And he comments on this. He does see that the equalitarian spirit who is going to be more and more uh, intolerant, hostile to everything that uh, would make for uh, freedom. As a result, while he felt that the United States had a remarkable society, amazing freedom, and more devout than any other society he knew anything about, he also recognized that because the doctrinal foundations were gone, the direction would be only downward. Very important work by Alexis de Tocqueville. Now on to some other things. Just a brief note. Uh, the Daily Californian for Wednesday, June the 5th has a great deal to say about the uh, demonstrations, riots would be a better word, against the apartheid and for disinvestment in South Africa. But nothing condemning the fact that these demonstrators moved into one auditorium to break up a Christian meeting, the Maranatha Fellowship meeting, because it was a pro-life meeting and, among other things, was showing the silent screen. This they could not tolerate and yet they talk about freedom. 
Then from uh, the Gammon and Grange uh, Law Office's uh, Religious Liberties newsletter, this item, I quote, Catholic Church sued for anti-abortion views. A federal district court in New York has determined that the Supreme Court's decision in Allen v. Wright did not affect the district court's earlier ruling that individual voters, clergy members, and a church-affiliated guidance center had standing to challenge the tax-exempt status of the Catholic Church. The suit alleged that the church lobbied and participated in prohibited political campaigns in order to further its anti-abortion views. Therefore, the court denied the government's renewed motion to dismiss the case for lack of jurisdiction, and the case will proceed to trial. Note, this case is a sleeper, which could have mammoth ramifications uh, within the religious tax-exempt community. First, the case clearly opens the door to private suits challenging government grants of tax exemption. Secondly, it entangles the court in deciding whether church members are exercising their legitimate First Amendment rights of either free expression or religious expression on the one hand, or on the other hand are engaged in prohibited political activity." Unquote. This type of case is very dangerous because by agreeing to hear the case, the court has claimed a jurisdiction it does not rightfully have. It is inescapable that the church, if it is to express itself on moral issues, will at times be political. It is inescapable. And to deny it that right is to deny it the freedom to be Christian. A very, very evil measure. Then from the Wall Street Journal, Friday, June 14, 1985, an article by Peter K. Coretzis, The Bible as Romanian Toilet Paper. As you know, our ambassador there resigned recently, protesting at our uh, favorable attitude towards Romania, Mr. Funderbunk. Uh, who advocated a harder U.S. line against Bucharest. Well, one of the things that uh, Romania has claimed is that uh, it is uh, giving attention to human rights, that it is honoring... Uh, the agreement to distribute the Bibles uh, that are provided by various refor uh, Reformed and uh, Romanian groups, and so on. In fact, they've cited this as proof of their magnanimity. Well, let me read just the first portion of this article. I quote, in all of the diabolical manifestations of Adolf Hitler's hatred for God and all religions, keeping in mind that he burned Torahs, I don't think even he conceived of anything so ugly. So fumed California Representative Bob Dornan at a GOP-organized press conference last week on rights abuses in Romania.
He described samples of toilet paper with biblical words such as Esau, Israel, Jeremiah, Satan, and Istin, Hungarian for God, embedded in the tissue. The sample panels are incontrovertible evidence, Representative Dornan said. The 20,000 Bibles donated in the 1970s by the World Reformed Alliance to the Transylvanian Magyar, uh, Magyar Reformed Church with the permission of Bucharest were diverted to a mill in Brela, as labels on the rolls indicate, for recycling into toilet paper. The high-quality Western paper and ink, however, resisted the smashing, and the biblical words are clearly legible in the creases." Unquote. Another article uh, in the Wall Street Journal for Monday, June 17, 1985, deals with the fact that in New England, uh, and Las Vegas, there will be brownouts during the hottest days of summer, times when their power will be turned off. Um, the reason for this? Charles A. Lindsay, Nevada Power Company president, says, for instance, the demand for electricity justifies building a new power plant in his region now. But given the financial uncertainty created by short-sighted regulation, he says, Nevada Power is not willing to commit the tens of millions of dollars a new plant will cost. So, regulations here as elsewhere are creating shortages. Now on to another item, very quickly. The Stockton Record, in, on its editorial page, Monday, June 17, 1985, has an editorial which has some good things to say. It deals with the testing of uh, state school children across the country and calls attention to the fact that since we communicate in English, we have a problem today. And he says the results of the testing by the National Assessment of Educational Progress are worrisome. And I quote, 75% of the fourth graders, 46% of the eighth graders, and 40% of the 11th graders uh, could not write a satisfactory report of a news event after being given all the facts. More than 75% of the students at all levels could not write a letter to their principal offering adequate reasons for changing a school rule. So, we have a problem. Now they hedge and uh, go around the barn and assessing the responsibility. But all the same, they do deal with the fact that the schools are failures. And this is an obvious fact increasingly. I read something to you from It's God's World on the Sexton Beetle. I'm going to read 
another article from its God's world in order to get you to realize this is a good thing to have in your Christian school. And if you don't have a Christian school, subscribe for a single copy for your children or grandchildren. It's God's World, the mailing address, Box 2330, Asheville, North Carolina, 28802. Their telephone is 704-253-8063. This is a, a very short article by Russell J. Asvit, The Miracle of Water. And I quote, What's more ordinary than water? You drink it when you run out of your favorite soft drink, you swim in it, and you wear a raincoat to keep it off you. You keep your tropical fish in it, too. It's everywhere. Three-fourths of the Earth's surface is covered by water. Because water is so common, we've been taking it for granted since we were babies. And so we've ignored one of God's miracles. Water, a miracle? Sure, listen to this. Water at times ignores natural laws, as if it has a mind of its own. And it's a good thing for us that it does. If water weren't such an independent-minded oddball, life couldn't even exist on earth. For instance, most things shrink with the cold. That's true of water, too, down to a point. But when the temperature drops to 39 degrees Fahrenheit, something odd happens. Water begins getting bigger and lighter. By the time it freezes at 32 degrees, it's able to float. That isn't some quirk of nature. God designed water that way for a purpose. If ice became heavier as it froze, it would sink to the bottom. The rivers and oceans would continue freezing until they were completely solid. That would kill all marine life. But God in his wisdom has designed ice so that it floats on the surface. That way it insulates the water underneath, preserving life. Here's another amazing fact. The same water that flowed in the Jordan River when Jesus was baptized is still being circulated today. Here's how it happens. Thousands of cubic miles of water evaporate from oceans each year. This water is carried over land as clouds. It then falls in the form of rain or snow. After that, it returns the ocean through rivers and underground streams. It is recycled again and again. What is even more astounding is that Solomon knew of this 3,000 years ago. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams came from, there they return again. Ecclesiastes 1.7 This water cycle didn't just come into being by accident. It is part of God's plan. When he thunders, the waters of in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from the storehouses. Jeremiah 10.13 The earth's total supply of water never changes. 
the same amount of water being taken up one place is coming down somewhere else. Where and when it falls is also governed by the Lord. He loathes the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. Job 37:11 through 13 Probably the most startling of all is water's ability to ignore gravity the force that pulls everything down to earth. Water behaves itself when it is following its course from the mountains to the sea. It moves in obedience to gravity's downward pull. Sometimes, however, it has a change of heart. California's giant redwood trees can grow to a height of over 350 feet. The roots sink down another 50 feet. Water that reaches the treetop from the lowest root is lifted 400 feet. No one knows how this is possible. Scientists call it capillary action, but giving it a name doesn't explain how water can just forget about the law of gravity. The heavens declare the glory of God, says Psalm 19.1. All around us, the miracle of water clearly shows us the care of our all-wise and loving Creator. Unquote. Now on to another article from All About Issues, put out by American Life Lobby, P.O. Box 490, Stafford, Virginia, 22554. Send them a donation and ask to receive all about issues. Since I wrote a book on the myth of overpopulation, I was very pleased to see that they have an excellent little article, Facts About Population. I quote, there are fewer than 5 billion people. Together they weigh 250,000 tons. That could, they could all be put inside a ball less than half a mile in radius. There are thousands of mountains in the world, each bigger than all the people in the world would be if they were put in one place. Did you know that all the people in the world could be put inside the buildings of just one city? Did you know that everybody in the world could stand up inside the city limits of Virginia, Beach, Virginia, with nobody touching anyone else? Did you know that everybody in the world could lay down inside the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida, with nobody touching anybody else? If the world were reduced to the size of a very large house, how big would all the people be in proportion? The answer, far less than one billionth of a cubic inch. Do you know that everyone who has lived since the time of Christ could stand in Jacksonville, Florida with nobody touching anyone else? Caution, put the dead people downwind of the live one. Do you know that all the people in the world could stand in an area of about one millionth of the surface area of the world? Did you know that every month the spiders of the world eat bugs that weigh more than all the people do? Remember that the next time you're tempted to step on a spider. 
Did you know that the rainfall in just one city can on a rainy night, a day, weigh more than all the people in the world? Did you know that all the houses in the world would take up less than 2% of the land area of Alaska? Did you know that all the houses in the world could be put into small states such as Maryland or New Hampshire or Vermont with none of the houses touching any other house? Did you know that the world now grows one-third more food per person than it grew any time before 1950? Did you know that there has been less starvation in the past ten years than any other time in recorded history? Did you know that nearly half the houses in Asia where most of the world's people live could be put into the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida, with no house touching another house? Did you know that all of the buildings, roads, and other structures made by mankind take up about one-tenth of one percent of the world's land surface area? Did you know that less than one percent of the U.S. land area is taken up by all the buildings and paving put together? Did you know that all the buildings, roads, farms, and so on in the world take up about 3% of the Earth's surface? Did you know that some Africans are starving, but that there is more potential agricultural land in Africa than the entire world is now using? Did you know that if you defined crowdedness as living close to a bunch of other people in a large city, Australia would be more than ten times as crowded as India or China and Canada would be almost ten times as crowded? Did you know that the large cities, two million or over, of America contain more people than the combined large cities of China, Indonesia, India, and Pakistan? Do you know that China is less crowded than most of the nations of Europe? Did you know that there are nations in Europe where all the people are well-fed that are more than ten times as crowded as China? Did you know that if the food produced in the world were divided equally, each person would have more than twice as much food as needed for good health? Did you know that we could stop all the world's starvation by distributing about one million tons of grain to the needy? Do you know that the world grew about a hundred and 30 million tons more grain last year than the year before, a nearly 10% increase in the amount of grain grown, and an improvement more than a hundred times as great as would be necessary to stop all the world's starvation. These facts are documented and have been verified by Dr. Robert L. Sassoon. Many of them are contained in the Handbook on Population, which is available from the American Life Lobby, and which will be reprinted later this year with more positive facts about people and their value. The first edition is available now. Please check our resource pages. Knowing the facts about population is the only way that pro-life people can counter the arguments foisted upon the public by the population control movement. People are an asset. Read our new brochure by Julian Simon, The War on People, unquote. Well, our time is up, and I have enjoyed this session as I have enjoyed all our previous ones. And every day as I read and study, I'm thinking 
of all of you and of the things I'd like to share with you. So I do appreciate the fact that you are listening. Thank you and God bless you all.